Good morning. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. We're going to read it in just a moment here. Let me start with a question. Friends, how do you know that God will bring you through life and death and into eternity? If you're a Christian, what gives you confidence that God will keep you to the end? What gives you assurance that God will keep you secure? Maybe you've walked into church this morning and your confidence is a little shaky. Those are the sorts of questions that you're asking yourself, perhaps deep down. Or maybe you're flying high, you're doing well, you're, you've had a good week of walking with Jesus. You know, often it's in trouble or hardship or grief. It's in those seasons where our confidence is shaken And sometimes it puts us in a place where we may be tempted to give up, to throw in the towel, to compromise, to stray. You know, losing your faith doesn't happen overnight. You don't just kind of wake up and find yourself far from God. Losing your faith is often like a piece of driftwood on a lazy river. It moves so slowly, sometimes so, so slowly, it's tough to tell it's ever happening. But here's the deal, friends. You will never just drift towards God. You will never just drift towards holiness and bigger faith. You can't coast towards more affection for Jesus. You can't just slide into more spiritual growth. If you're drifting, you are very likely drifting away from God. That's where the current is taking us. So how do you develop courage to swim upstream? How do you have that kind of confidence? Our psalm this morning shows us a man, David, who is learning to swim upstream. Someone who has confidence that God will keep him to the end. Someone who is making efforts to get there. So let's read now Psalm 16 together, starting in verse 1. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are pleasures, excuse me, are eternal pleasures. Friends, this is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Let me give you the main point of this passage, and I trust the sermon in a sentence. You'll see it on your screen. If you're taking notes, open up the bulletin. You'll see it at the top of the notes section in your bulletin. Here it is. You can be utterly confident Christian, 
Sounds pretty good. You can be utterly confident, Christian. Why can you be confident? Because God will preserve his joyful, trusting people and bring them home in the end. Notice where David starts in this psalm and where he moves in this psalm. He starts, notice in verse 1, protect me or keep me safe, O Lord. And from there he moves, notice in verse 7, several verses later he says, I will not be shaken. So his confidence, his courage has grown. And where does he end up in this psalm? Notice verses 9 and 10, he says, essentially, I will rest securely forever. So David moves from, Lord, keep me safe, to you will keep me safe, to you will keep me safe even after I die. Here, David shows us a confidence, not only in this life, but for all eternity. And so the question that I have, and hopefully you have, is how does David get there? How does his confidence grow? That's what we're going to explore this morning. I want to present you with three declarations from David that showcase his growing confidence. Three declarations. Here's the first one. So we're looking at, as we're looking at verses one through four, you are my good Lord. You are my good Lord. David starts, notice with, protect me, God, because I already take refuge in, in you. He's saying, continue to keep me safe. I'm already clinging to you, God. I'm already in your fortress, God. So continue to keep me safe. You know, this reminds me, and I'm sure it reminds all of you, of a scene in The Lord of the Rings, Battle of Helm's Deep, huge fortress, okay? The good guys are on the inside. There's very few of them. And the bad guys, this huge army is amassed on the outside, and they're amassing over time. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that one of the good guys decides to stand out all alone, waiting for the thousands of enemies to come, and imagine him shouting all alone in the field, O king, save me, preserve me, keep me safe. But the the guy fails to run into the fortress that the king has built for him to be safe. That's what we do sometimes, don't we? David is in the fortress As the day of trouble comes, and he cries out to his king, keep me safe. Friends, when the day of trouble comes, make sure you're in the castle. But also, let me encourage you to pray in the same manner that David prays here. Like children running to their parents at night, David runs to God. And this is quite striking because David was a strong man as he's presented in 1 and 2 Samuel. He beat down Goliath as a teenager. He was A praised officer in Saul's army, he successfully led a guerrilla war for years. And then as king, he was a shrewd diplomat and a successful warrior king. And so if there was ever a man who could take care of himself, it would be David. But friends, in weakness, notice very first words in this psalm, he offers honest prayers to God. Friends, is that something that you and I do? Do you bring your fears and tears to the Lord? It seems so weak, doesn't it, to take refuge in God? But this isn't the last option for sissies. It's not the coward's way to avoid responsibility. The American ideal is that we take care of ourselves. We're taught to be self-reliant and independent and autonomous. Only weak people turn to God first. But the opposite is true. It takes immense courage. It takes immense faith 
to say to God, protect me. And of course, we would affirm that God-reliant people are responsible and intentional and courageous and strategic, and they make efforts. But friends, it starts with something we talked about last week. It starts with consciously recognized weakness, followed by dependence upon the Lord. Think about this, friends. If dependence on God is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. I want you to notice verse 2. Here's where we see David's first declaration. He says, you are my Lord. Now, there we see that word again, Lord. It's Adonai, which means sovereign one or master. And notice David not only calls God Lord or master. Notice he says that apart from this Lord, this Adonai, his God, he has no good, according to verse 2. Here's one of the promises that we must believe if we're going to persevere in our faith, if we're going to make it to that celestial city, we must believe alongside David that God and only God is good. Think about how this relates to our sin. Isn't the essence of sin looking for good outside of God's provision and ways? So, Imagine for a moment, a young woman thinks she will find love and security if she gives in to her boyfriend. What's she doing? Well, she's looking for a good thing, security and love and affection, apart from the Lord. A man indulges in an emotional affair in his office. Well, what is he looking for? He's looking for relational intimacy, perhaps more, but it's apart from the Lord, right? An unforgiving man craves justice. That's a good thing. But he decides to take revenge. He decides to sabotage. But God says, vengeance is mine. You know, when I dig beneath the surface of my own sins, I get a a window into how I'm trying to achieve something good apart from the Lord and his ways. It might be security or pleasure that I'm craving or significance or justice or some sort of physical need. But in the end, it's just idolatry, isn't it, friends? I'm serving someone. I'm serving something other than God. And I'm looking to these other things to satisfy my needs and my desires. So so David's declaration here is so helpful. You are my master, and I have nothing good apart from you. You know, David fleshes this idea out uh, in verses 3 and 4. So what is he saying in these verses? Well, I think he's saying in these verses that if God is your master, you will delight in the things that he delights in. That's what allegiance looks like. You know, I jumped onto the Joe Burrow bandwagon about three years ago. He was coming in, Cincinnati Bengals. And I thought, this is, you know, I think this is a good time to become a Bengals fan, right? Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense. And as I jumped onto this bandwagon, it would have been strange not to embrace the entire Bengals fandom, right? I mean, that's part of what it means to be a loyal Cincinnati Bengals fan. Well, the same thing is true of a Christian. When God is your master, then his children become your delight. Listen to 1 John 5, verse 1. It says it really well. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And I think this means, friends, that of all the things that you should be interested in, of all the things that you should give your attention to, of all the things that should bring you pleasure, the people in the chairs around you right now, those who have covenanted with you in membership, they should be at the top of the list. John Calvin comments on these particular verses. Listen carefully. We ought highly to value and esteem the true and devoted servants of God and to regard nothing as of greater importance than to connect ourselves to them. 
And this we will actually do if we wisely reflect in what true excellence and dignity consist. And do not allow the vain splendor of the world and its deceitful pomp to dazzle our eyes. Listen, there are some weird people in every church, right? And I I don't want you to feel left out. There's probably someone who thinks you're a little bit weird too, okay? And it's tempting to ignore these strange people in our church because our eyes are, to use Calvin's words, dazzled with the vain splendor of the world. But Calvin instructs us to wisely reflect on true excellence. Who are the people of virtue? Who are the people who are filled with grace and truth and love? Who are the people who are actually repenting of their sins and and are growing into the image and likeness of Christ? Do you find delight in these people? Or is it finding more delight in the people outside of God's church? Friends, do you invest in God's people? Do you encourage God's people? Do you speak well of God's people? And not just your your kind of friend group, but all of God's people here at Faith Church. Now, how can we kind of cultivate this delight? Let me give you three quick applications, okay? First of all, one way to do it is to join a community group if you haven't already. Community groups are kind of our small group ministry, and it's a great way to connect with other people. And, and really, the call here is to take great delight in all of God's people. So it's really this church as a whole, but one way to kind of aim your affection and delight, aim your investment in love, is to join a community group and give yourself to that. Number two, practice hospitality. There's a great little verse in Romans chapter 15. It says, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. Friends, have you ever thought about the hospitality of Jesus towards you? All the ways that Jesus has loved you and made space for you and been kind to you. In the same manner, Paul Paul tells the church in Romans, practice hospitality. So let me encourage you to do that out out of your home. Hospitality is also just a, there's a kind of a spirit of hospitality that you can bear as you're welcoming even people here at Faith Church. Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. Great verse. Number three, integrate others into your life. And what I mean by this is, you know, we're all so busy, right? We're all doing so many things. It's hard to think of, okay, I'm going to do another Wednesday night activity so that I can delight in more of the saints of God here at Faith Church. But there's just really simple things that you can do to integrate people into your life. Let me give you an example. When I was going to the Middle East, my wife was here, and you know we got four children, so she was, I'm sure, feeling it. There's a very sweet couple here in the church who every Sunday they go to Skyline Chili, and they enjoy that monstrosity of a meal that's there at Skyline. I heard an amen over here. Glad to hear it. And they invited my dear wife and our children to come along. It's a really simple thing, but they were caring for my wife, right? Integrating her, one of the saints here at Faith Church, into their very lives. And I, let me just encourage you to consider doing that. So commitment to God means affection for God's people. But friends, loyalty to God also means something else. I want you to put your eyes on verse 4. Let's read verse 4 together. It's a very striking verse. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. So David is saying, you are my Lord, but they are not my lords. That's what he's saying. You are my Lord, but they 
these idols, they are not my lords. You know, these ancient pagans, they would carve out images out of stone and marble and wood, and they represented various gods, so the gods of agriculture or love or fertility. And so people would run after these gods. They would pay them homage. They would uh, pour out their drink sacrifices in order to gain a certain benefit. And so my crops aren't growing. Well, let me go drink a, a blood offering to the God of the fields. You know, and I know it's kind of gross, but that's the sort of thing that they would do. But I want you to notice here in verse 4, David flips the script on them. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that idols promise pleasure but deliver pain. We have different masters in the 21st century. We don't have carved images. Hopefully, you haven't carved something in your backyard. That would be a little strange. We have idols of the heart. Well, like what? Let me ask you a few diagnostic questions to draw that out of you. What sorts of things consume you? Where does your money go to? Where do you, or what do you fantasize about? What extreme emotions, maybe it's fear, maybe it's anger, what sorts of emotions expose what's really important to you? Maybe it's the idol of family sports. That's kind of a thing in America in particular, right? Or maybe it's the idol of career and resume building or, or the idols of pleasure or comfort and convenience. Maybe it's respect and success and accomplishment that you crave after. Even ministry can become an idol. You may not sacrifice a goat on these altars, right? But maybe you sacrifice your family. Maybe you sacrifice your morals, your integrity. And maybe you sacrifice your money. Friends, the idols of this world will do everything in their power and employ whatever means necessary and spare no expense to capture and keep your allegiance, and in particular, the allegiance of your heart. So be warned this morning. Idols promise pleasure, but deliver pain. Look again at verse 4 with me. And look at the last part of this verse. He says, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment one of these pagan worshipers, and his crops are dying. And so he grabs a goat, and he runs down the street to his local temple, and he says a few prayers, and then he cuts the throat of this goat. And one of the priests hands him a cup so that, you know, some of the blood can kind of collect. And then in an act of allegiance, he lifts the cup to the idol and says, to Baal or to Molech and he drink, drinks the blood. And David says, hey, listen, I'm not going to do that. I will not drink these blood offerings. I'm not going to even speak the names of these other gods. I have one master. And as New Testament Christians, friends, we ought not do this either because we lift a different cup, don't we? The cup of the new covenant, which is filled with different blood, the blood of the Lamb. Each week we lift this cup and speak the name of Jesus as an act of allegiance to God. So friends, taking the Lord's Supper is not only an act of remembrance of our Lord Jesus, it's an act of defiance against the world. You know, those of us who worship at the altar of self-indulgence all week long, or worship at the altar of work all week long, or worship at the altar of sports all week long, and then we come to church and lift another cup, we are insulting the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may it not be so. May we lift only one cup. May we only speak the name of one person. His name is Jesus. So let me just encourage you. As you're thinking about the Lord's Supper, as you think about coming to church, let me encourage you. I mean, this is not just kind of a ritual we do. 
It's interesting, as you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warns Christians, do not take the Lord's Supper in an um, improper way. Now, I want you to feel a lot of freedom here. Uh, Paul is not exhorting Christians, and we are certainly here not at Faith Church saying, hey, you've got to be completely perfect and clean, and you've got to walk into this building, and man, your life is spotless and wonderful. If you're in a place of repentance, if you're fighting against your sin, if you've got brothers and sisters around you helping you, and you're, the struggle is real, we want you to feel so much freedom and assurance and encouragement to come and take the Lord's Supper. But friends, if there is unrepentant sin in your life, if you've been drinking this cup of another God, an idol in your life, all week long, perhaps it's been longer than that, let me warn you, not based on my own thinking, but let me warn you based on Paul's thinking to maybe sit back and maybe focus on repenting to the Lord. That's the first declaration. The second declaration is found in verses 5 through 8. You are my satisfying portion. Let's read verses 5 and 6 together. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So David's not going to take the names of other gods on his lips, but notice he does take Yahweh's name on his lips. Here, he is declaring his radical contentment in God alone. And notice his blessings hang on three words that stand out in these verses, portion, lines, and inheritance. Do you see that in those verses? And these three words point back to the time when Joshua divided up the land, the promised land, after the conquest between the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe was given a portion of the land with clear boundary lines marking the borders. And this land was their inheritance to be passed down through the generations. But one tribe didn't get any land. Any ideas? Yeah, that's good. Yes, we good Bible people. You've read the Bible before. That's good. It's the Levites, the priestly order. And that kind of sounds like a bad deal. I mean, how can this be a good thing for them not to get a portion of the land? Well, that's not how God viewed it. This is from Numbers chapter 18. God says, and the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Do you hear that? So what is David saying here in Psalm 16? He's saying, you, God, are my portion. He's saying, you, God, have provided you. Friends, what is the greatest blessing God can give you today? If God gave you perfect health, but you did not have God himself, would you be satisfied? If God gave you a nice home and vacations and plenty of money, but not himself, he withheld his own presence from you, would you be satisfied? What if God gave you a perfect, fresh, like sparkly new world to live in with no wars, no tensions, but he withheld his presence from you? Would that be enough? No. Friends, the greatest blessing God can give us is himself. Think about all the spiritual blessings that we Christians have in Christ. Why is forgiveness good news? It's because it removes the guilt that separates us from God. Why is justification good news? It's because Christ's imputed righteousness gives us access, free access to God. Why is eternal life good news? Because it means we can see and savor Jesus forever and ever and ever, right? 
This is what David's heart is set on here in Psalm 16. God is his portion. God is his overflowing cup. God is his inheritance. And so nothing on this earth, no person, no power, no position, no prestige, no accomplishment, no family, no treasure, no health comes even close to satisfying us like Jesus does. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Can you speak these words with David? You know, it's one thing to make this confession on our best days. It's a whole other thing to make this confession on our hardest days. When your job is suddenly taken away, when your, when your prodigal son leaves home for a foreign land, when crisis suddenly shows up in your life, will Jesus be enough? Will he be your portion? Will he be your inheritance? You know, one of the greatest joys um, that, that I get to experience as one of your pastors is simply to know your stories. I've seen some of you walk these dark, painful paths, and I've, I've had the privilege of, of crying with you. I, I've heard your laments. I've felt the burden with you. But I've also witnessed remarkable faith, extraordinary faith in the midst of incredible suffering. You've told me often through tears, God is my portion. You've told me through tears, I have no other good except my Lord. And I just want to thank you. You have encouraged me. You have strengthened me. I'm thinking of particular people, including our sister Jamie. She has been on my heart this week. I know she's been on yours. You guys have encouraged me. You have encouraged one another as you are clinging to Christ and saying, God is my portion in the midst of all kinds of things. Thank you for this. Notice again, verse six. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, remember the land was divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. They were split up by casting lots. And so essentially it was God who apportioned out the land for his people. So some people got more land, other people got smaller bits of land. So what is David's perspective here in verse 6? Well, he's saying, listen, wherever the Lord is apportioned land for me, metaphorically speaking, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. Friends, where has God set the boundary markers for you? On this Mother's Day, we cannot help but remember not only the blessings, the good things, but also the hard things of our lives. Many of us have children. Many of us have grandchildren. Praise the Lord but not all. Some of us have the blessing of a wonderful, godly spouse, but not all. Many of us enjoy good jobs. Many of us enjoy generous salaries and kind of a comfortable life, but not all. Has God drawn out a season, you know, kind of a portion of a piece of land, a season of life that has heartache and loss for you? I just wonder, friends, how are you going to respond David's declaration can become our declaration too, regardless of where the lines fall. You, God, you are my portion. You know, the person who God keeps till the end is the person who discovers how to be content in God. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his classic, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, great book, hard to read, commend it to you. Uh, he says this, quote, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit 
which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And those last two words are key, right? In every condition, whatever the lot, excuse me, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. One way we can stay content is by enjoying what God has given us rather than focusing on what God has not given us. What has he apportioned for you and me? What are the gifts he's given us? Do we enjoy these gifts? Do we praise the giver of these gifts? I want you to imagine with me a boy at Christmas time. You know, you give him a Lego set. He's been dying to have this. He's been looking forward to this. You expect him to jump around with excitement and run away to, you know, start to build this Lego set. But he, interestingly enough, he sets it aside and he comes over and he says, thanks, Dad. Nice gift, but I just want you. Aw, aw. But let's be honest, if you are the parent giving this great gift, I mean, is this what you actually want? No, you, you want him to enjoy the gift. You want him to run off and play with it and enjoy it, right? Because you love him. Your gift is an extension of your love for him. And this is how it is with God, friends. He wants us to enjoy his gifts and to praise him as the giver. And so let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't dwell on what he hasn't given you. Dwell on what he has. In verses 7 and 8, we see two great gifts that, that God's presence brings. Notice it's his counsel and his support. God is counseling him, David, so well during the daytime, in fact, that, he, that even at night the words of the Lord come to his heart and instruct him. And then verse 8 says that God is just like someone in battle who is always at your right hand providing support. So God is like the best, the greatest biblical counselor. You know, think about the the best counselor. You know, all their attention is on you. They're not looking past you as you talk. They're not searching for something more interesting. They're not playing with their phones. They'd be a terrible counselor if they're doing those things. Friends, God is always ready to advocate for you, to jump to your aid. And notice how verse 8 concludes. David concludes this. He says, I will not be shaken because of all this. So his confidence has grown, right, through these seven verses or eight verses. His confidence right now is soaring, in fact. And we new covenant Christians can have even more confidence than David because we have the Holy Spirit as our counselor and our advocate. And remember, Jesus' final words to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28. Friends, how many times, how many, how many, over the centuries, how many Christians in the day of trouble have sensed Jesus standing with them? I know there's dozens, hundreds of stories here, testimonies. Listen to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's on trial. He might die the next day. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So all of his buddies, they're gone. All of his brothers and sisters, they're not standing with him. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for forgiveness, The Lord, listen, he may not take away the pain. He may not take away the trial. He may not take away the hurt or the disease or the injustice, but he will stand with you through it all. What encouragement. 
So David declares, you are my Lord. He declares, you are my portion. And now we see in verses 9 through 11, he declares, you are my eternal joy. These are some of my favorite verses in all of the Psalms. Now, as we come to this kind of conclusion here, you need to know that these aren't three separate declarations. It's not, you know, just kind of separate ideas that David wants us to think about. One thing relates to the other. So the commitment to God that we see in verses 1 through 4 brings about the contentment in God we see in verses 5 through 8. And all of this results in this great confidence in God we see in verses 9 through 11. That's why we see the word therefore in verse 9. So there's kind of an escalation here, a progression. Something is building and he's coming to his, his final hurrah. He says, you are my Lord, you are my portion. And this results in this kind of effusive, joyful confidence in God. Let's read verses 9 and 10 together. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. I want you to take note of the logic in these verses. So David's body is shaking with joy. Why is that happening? Well, it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your faithful one see decay. So it's rooted in or grounded in that truth in verse 10. What, what does that mean? Well, David is confident that God won't let him waste away in hell. What God has been for David in this life, his refuge, his portion, his counselor, he will be forever for David. And it's this, this belief, this rock-solid conviction that brings his body some shaking. You know, he's just so joyful. Reminds me of my friend Kyle when he was converted as a junior in high school. Radically converted. He converted at church. He heard the gospel and he just became a Christian. Uh, he, he tells a story way better than I do. But the next day he was on the bus and, and he was just so overwhelmed with, with verse 10. He was so overwhelmed by the fact that that God was going to punish him, that he was on this track towards judgment and hell and wrath, and he deserved it all, but, but Jesus became his shield. Jesus became his justification. And so he was overcome by this, and he was in the bus, and he was seeing all his friends, and he says, I was just bouncing. I was bouncing, looking out the window and just bouncing with joy. You know, just body-shaking joy. Interestingly enough, the apostles, Peter and Paul, both argued that David could not be talking about himself here. Why? Well, because David's still dead, right? I mean, his body did decay somewhere in ancient Palestine. His muscles and his skin and his tissues rotted away and turned to dust. And so Peter, in Acts 2, the passage that was read by Bill earlier, he concludes that David must have not been speaking about himself. He must be speaking of another who did not stay in the tomb, and who did not decay. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that David was a prophet, that he knew that God would raise up a descendant of his who would sit on the throne. There were prophecies in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God said to him, listen, I'm going to raise up a king in your line. And somehow David distinguished in his own life a pattern, a type of the one to come. And he had this expectation that the promised king, the Messiah, would come from his own body, his, his own kind of lineage, and would live out to fulfill this psalm, which is why he wrote these words. So friends, it's not only David that would be raised one day, there would be another. His name is, of course, Jesus. And here's how this applies to us. I want you to catch this. This is so important. 
the ultimate source of our infallible protection is Jesus' resurrection. Since Jesus is forever preserved, so too are all who are united to him by faith. Friends, ultimately, it's not your efforts, it's not your spiritual accomplishments or your church attendance or your Bible knowledge or your relational investments that will ensure that you will make it in the end. The final guarantee of our eternal safety is Jesus' resurrection. Because he was raised, so too will you be. Because he was preserved and protected, so too will you be. Because Jesus today enjoys the very presence of God, so too will you enjoy his presence. And listen, friends, our confidence today can be even greater than David's because what David saw far ahead of him, and it was kind of like kind of little blurry, we see in our rear view mirror very clearly. We apprehend clearly today what he saw only through kind of fuzzy glasses, right? So, so in the face of trouble, in the face of heartache or grief, even death, we can believe we can believe on the basis of an empty tomb that God will not abandon us to the grave. Death will not be the end of our relationship with God. It was not the end for Jesus. It will not be the end for you or for me. In fact, death is the doorway to everlasting joy. Look at verse 11 with me. Look at how he closes. Look at this kind of punchy way that he closes and concludes this psalm. You, God, reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Friends, safety and rest and resurrection of our bodies, these aren't the end game for the Christian. You know what our ultimate hope is? You know what our ultimate kind of aim is or the aim that God has for us? It's joy in God's presence. Joy in God's presence presence. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's not just joys near God or joys around God, but above it all, it's joy in God. His presence is paradise. If you were to go to heaven and you had all the good stuff, okay, no tears, no pain, the full human capacities of a new resurrection body, and all your loved ones were there, and all your friends were there, and there was no more sin, no more conflict, no more tension, no more confusion, but you didn't have God there, would it really be paradise, friends? No, no way. Friends, this is where God, in his utter goodness, and by the working of his omnipotent hand, is driving all of his people towards. He is aiming at our joy. He's aiming to fill it up throughout all eternity in himself. Imagine that. And it begins on earth, of course, as each, each of us, one by one, begins to say, you are my master, you are my portion, you are my joy but it culminates in the next age. And so, friends, we can have a great confidence that God will protect us from ultimate harm. He'll protect us. He'll shield us from hell. He'll give us his presence because he's raised Jesus, his own son, from the grave. And so he will raise us too and bring us into this eternal experience of joy. Amen.
Let's take a moment to uh, ponder this passage, moment of silence, and uh, then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.